Well, hey, good morning to you, Grace. Would you turn in your Bibles to the book of 1 John? 1 John chapter 4 and verse 7. 1 John 4 and verse 7 is where we're going to pick it up from where we were last week. And while you're finding that, I want to remind you who wrote the text that you're turning to. Because that's going to matter today. Who wrote it and why they wrote it is going to come from this. John, obviously, is the author, and John is probably the closest friend of Jesus. Jesus had a lot of people who followed him. Sometimes they're described in the Bible in the New Testament as followers or disciples or crowds or multitudes. Jesus had thousands of people following him around. They were followers in like the literal physical sense, like they were literally following him around. Not that they were believers in the message that he had. They were followers because he did these things called miracles and they wanted to see a miracle. Wouldn't you want to see a miracle? Like if, Even if you weren't a Christian... Wouldn't you want to see someone do something supernatural? Well, that's why they were all following him around, because they wanted a miracle done or done to them or to heal their grandma or to have the five loaves and two fishes treatment done on them and get a free lunch. They wanted to see a miracle. So thousands and thousands of people followed him, but not all of them were genuine followers. They weren't genuine disciples. There's a, a, a smaller group within those crowds that were genuine believers, genuine disciples, genuine followers of Jesus. They were the ones who were like the first real Christians. They were the ones who heard Jesus' message and were spiritual followers of Jesus Christ. And then even among that group, there was even more of a central group. They were the 12. You know them as the disciples or the apostles. And even there's even a more central core group than the 12. So even, they're like inside of the inside, but there's an inside of the inside of the inside. There was a core central group of apostles of three that were the closest to Jesus, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John. Now you notice John is in there. He's the author of this book. And John, of those three, of the inner, inner, inner circle, of those three, John is the closest friend of Jesus. John is the only apostle standing there in the foot of the cross when Jesus is dying on the cross. It is John that Jesus gives his mom to as he dies so that John could take care of his mom. His mom, Mary, became a part of John's family. He is described in the New Testament as the one whom Jesus loved the one whom Jesus loved. And we're just supposed to know who that is. Well, let me give you a hint. It's John. John is the one whom Jesus loved. John is the closest human friend of Jesus. And he's writing this text here so that the readers would know how to determine who's a Christian, who is a genuine Christian, and who's a, a bogus Christian. Who is the, the real deal versus the ones who are pretending to be the real deal? Who's in and who's out even though they are saying that they're in? That's what this book is about. And we have received a lot of different things, a lot of different ways to tell. But the central message in all of this is love. Hopefully by now you've turned to 1 John chapter 4 and you found verse 7. Let's read it. Actually, the first six words only. He says, Beloved, 
let us love one another. That's the topic for today, love. <laughs> like, we've already talked about this before. I know, I know we have. We've already talked about this a lot. And so when I read this too, I'm th- I thought the same thing you're thinking, but we've already talked about this. I know. But now you're starting to learn how John is writing 1 John. It's like cyclical. He'll, he'll talk about a subject, and then he'll talk about others, and then he circles back around to that first topic, but now it's deeper than the first time. He'll talk about that topic again, and then he'll get around to some other things, and he'll circle back around to it a third time. But on the third time, it's deeper than it was the second time or the first time. But then he keeps going, and he talks about some other subjects, and he circles back around to it again. And so this today is at least the fourth time that we've talked about love like this. Let me show you the others just so that you don't think you're crazy uh, that you've heard this before. 1 John 2 verse 10 says, the one who loves his brother abides in the light. That's how you would know if you're a Christian, if you're abiding in the light, that you love other Christians. And there is no curse and stumbling for him, but the one who hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. One of the ways that you can know if someone else is a believer is the way that they love other Christians. One of the ways that you can know if you're a believer is your love, your interest to be around other Christians. And then in 1 John chapter 3, verse 10 was the second time that John cycled back to this topic again. It says, by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. It's obvious the difference between the two. Here are the two ways to tell the difference according to 1 John 3. It says, first way, anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God. Are they living a godly life? Do they have normal godly habits in their life? Yes, every once in a while trip into sin, but generally living as if they're living in God's culture? Or do they have kind of typical habits that are sinful, typical uh, things as if they're not living in God's culture, and every once in a while trip into good things? Which one is it? So that's one way to tell. Are they living a godly life? Secondly, though, it says, for the one who does not love his brother, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. The two ways to know if someone is a child of God or a child of Satan, a child of the devil, is are they living a godly life and do they love other Christians like God loved them. That was the second time. And then we get to the third one, uh, which was not long ago in verse 23, where it says, this is the commandment, that we believe in the name of the Son, Jesus, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as he commanded us. This is agape love. This is a sacrificial love, a love where it's about the recipient of the love, not what I get from it. A, th- this isn't a love because I feel in love with them, because of how cute they are, or how handsome they are, or because they're my child. It's not that kind of love. It's not family love. It's not because they, they have your same last name or the DNA that you love them. It's not that kind of love. It's not love like someone gave you something and so you give them something. It's, those are fine kinds of love. There's nothing wrong with those kinds, of, but that's not this kind of love. And so this is now at least the third, fourth time that John is talking about this. So don't shoot the messenger, okay? 
I'm just following the text. If you're tired of this talk of love, if you're bored of all this, you have my permission to leave because today might not be terribly new. Next week, come back. It'll be all new, but I'm just following the text as it's here. And so we're going to look at love for another time. Now, don't read too much into this either. I don't want you to assume because I am preaching on this topic of love again that I don't think you're doing it good enough and I need to browbeat you by another, a fourth sermon on the same topic so that I can finally beat it into you because I don't think that you are loving each other enough here at Grace Community Church. That's not why I'm preaching this. This is just where the text goes. I, I couldn't, if all that we have said about love so far, if all that we've studied about God's love so far hasn't done it and you still don't want to love any other people around here, <laughs> nothing I'm going to say is going to change your mind at all. That's just where the text goes. But why? Why does the text go here? It's because of who John is. John is a friend of Jesus. John is the best human friend of Jesus. And he knows that this is a trait of Jesus. John knows that this kind of love is a trait of God the Father. And if somebody is unable to love other Christians like God and Christ have loved, then there's a high probability that probably they aren't a child of God. They're probably a child of someone else, but they are not a child of God. And so John talks about this a lot. But the reason that he's talking about this is not because he's inventing this in his mind. It's because he was the best friend of Jesus. Jesus talked about this in John's gospel. So this is before 1 John is written. Jesus said this. John was here for all of this. Jesus said this, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how the world is going to know that you are a Christian. When I say the world, the, the people who are outside of our doors today, the people who aren't really interested in this whole Christian thing, the people who don't really care about Jesus or Christianity or salvation or any of that, how do they know that you're a Christian? Well, it's not the Christian t-shirt that you wear. It's, it's not all the Bible verses that you text all the time. It's not the things, the, the Christian things that you post on Facebook or Instagram or that sort of thing. It's none of the, those aren't bad. Those aren't immoral. But they don't know you're a Christian because of your bumper sticker. The way that people who are not in here know that you are a Christian is by the way that you love other Christians, not by the way that you love them. This isn't a call to love people who aren't Christians. Now, you should. (laughs) I'm not saying you shouldn't, but that's not what this is. That's not what this is about. This is about loving other Christians And as a result of that, outsiders seeing that kind of love, that sacrificial love to other people, and they realize that is a changed person. That is a transformed person because I can see it in their lives. And so that's where the text takes us today. Really, the text today is a commentary on what Jesus says. It's, it's like a further description of how is this something that all the world can see it? How can the world see that we're, we're disciples through this love? It's kind of a commentary on that. And so this 
as we're reading today, it's important that we remember this isn't only about them. Are they Christians? Are those Gnostics in that church, are they Christians? Are they believers? It's not just about them. Are they deceiving us? It's also about us. It's also for us. It's not only them. It's also us. Because the real problem here isn't, that, like the spiritual problem here, isn't are they deceiving us about their Christianity. That's not the problem. The real spiritual issue is not, is that person deceiving me about their salvation? The real issue is, have I deceived myself about my own? That's the real issue. Am I, have I been deceived myself? Have I been lying to myself about my own Christianity? That, that, so so this, this is partially, yes, binoculars, to look through the binoculars and look at other people and say, are they genuine believers? Are they, do they carry the things that, that show me that they're a believer? But it's also a mirror for us to say, am I a genuine believer? And love at the, is at the center of the answer to that question. So let's read our passage today. It's a long one. And then we're going to look at it in chunks because each chunk further highlights the nuances of this kind of love. So let's read beginning at verse 7 of 1 John 4. It says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected in us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. As this, as this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So John is talking about love again. And you already know what this word love means, but there might be someone here who has not. So let me quickly talk about this kind of agape love. Like I said, at Grace here, we've already covered this word love three times already. So most everyone here already knows what I'm talking about. But if you haven't been here for those, this is a love that sacrifices for another person even if they don't deserve it. This isn't like a, a love where they bought me coffee and so now I like them. 
This isn't the kind of emotional love, ooh, I'm in love with him. I'm in love with her because look at how good she looks and how good she treats me. I'm in love. That's not that kind of love. Those aren't bad kinds of love. It's just not those kinds of love. This is not a reciprocating love where they do something for me and I do something for them and over time we build these bonds of trust and of love. That's a different kind of love. That's fine love. That's not this love. This is not love of parents to a child. This isn't love because of familiarity, like they live in my neighborhood or they're in my, so, they're in my same social structure and so I see them a lot just in my life and so I've built a, a, a fond love for them. It's not those kinds of love. Those are fine, those are appropriate, but that's not this kind of love. This love is the one that is based on the pleasure of the object receiving the love. I get nothing from it or the giver of this love gets nothing from it. It, it, the focus is that the person, the object receiving the love, the person receiving the love, they get the joy, they get the benefit, and I sacrifice so that they, even if they don't deserve it, probably they don't deserve it, but they get this love anyway. But you knew all that already. <laughs> and so why does he talk about this? Why is this an issue? Why, why is it like, why is he circling around to it a fourth time? Well, that's what this passage is about. Let's go back to verses 7 and 8, and we'll start to go through this in chunks. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. The reason that a Christian can extend this kind of sacrificing love to another Christian is because this love came from God. That's a good thing. That's a really unique thing. This love did not get passed on to you because your grandma was really nice and then your mom was really nice and so you just got the nice gene. This kind of love isn't something that your dad had and so that then because there was a biological offspring from your mom and dad, now you have this kind of love. It's not like that. Now, that's either a good or bad thing depending on how you see it because if your parents have the kind of love, it'd be really nice just to get it, you know? But it would be terrible if your parents didn't have it because then you would never get it. But this kind of love is not like that. This kind of love is a love that is given to people by God. We get it from God. And because now we possess this kind of love as a believer, now we give this kind of love to other Christians. It's a family value. It's a family trait. We aren't forced to do it. We don't feel obligated to do it. That's just who we are. Families have traits. Families have values. The Zickert family has some, some, some family values. Go Dodgers, eat Del Taco and cherry pie. Outdoors is better than the indoors. There's some family values. Now, we have some other ones that are probably better than that, but those are four of them. And there are some family traits that we have. Just things that make us zickers. This is what we are. Just some traits of us. One of the traits of a zickert is we overthink everything. We overthink everything. That's just who we are. No one told us to do that. No one requires us to do that. We just overthink everything. That's just a family trait. We don't want to be late. We don't want to be late. Sometimes we are so early because we don't want to be late that we have to park around the corner 
a half an hour from, from you invited us over. We're a half an hour early, and we know you're still vacuuming your house. So we park around the corner, and we wait for the appropriate early time of 10 minutes before for us to drive and park in your driveway and knock on your door. Has anybody else ever done that, or is that just me? Okay, there are a few, there are a few other of you early people. The rest of you are like, you know, hey, um, you know, being fashionably late is my jam, and I'm happy being late. Um, well, we don't want to be late. That's just who we are. So we, we overthink things, and we don't want to be late. These are family traits. Another family trait of ours is, well, we want to plan everything. We're planners. That's just who we are. We like to plan. So I know when most people, when they go on vacation, about the extent of the planning for vacation, because it's vacation, you don't want to plan vacation, is that you, you, plan, you buy your airline ticket. Once you hit the beach, you're good. But that's not me. My vacations are Excel spreadsheeted, Okay. I have everything by day all lined out. I, get, I have everything all lined out. I make reservations months and months and months ahead of time. We have never missed a reservation ever on any of our vacations because they're planned like to the minute. I know what restaurants we're going to. I know what churches we're going to because I plan. I plan everything. And so if you invite us, the Zickers, over or, or, or to do something last minute, our brains just shut down. We don't know what to do with that. It's not that we don't want to come over. It's not that we don't like you. It's not that we have anything else planned that we have to cancel. We're boring people. It's just we didn't get to plan it. We're planners. So these are some family traits. No one taught us to do that. No one requires us to do it. It's just who we are. And love is like that for Christians. That is just who we are. It's just a, a natural response of 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 who we are as being in the family of God, because as it says, we know God. And then John says, though, those who don't know God, well, they don't love. Those don't, that don't love, they don't know God. Now, that is a very dividing statement. If you don't love like this, you are on the other side. If you don't love like this, everybody can tell that you are on the other side. You're not in, you are out. He's just saying that it's a part of the DNA of God. It's part of the, being a part of the DNA of the, of the family. And if it's a trait of God, if a trait of Jesus, well, the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And so if someone is unable to love like this, then they aren't a child of God. They're a child of someone else. Now, I get it that not all Christians are lovable all of the time. <laughs> That, that's so, there's like three categories of, of people. There, there are the people who are lovable most of the time. And that's all of you, of course. You, you all, you're lovable most of the time. And then there are, there are Christians who are like lovable eh, some of the time. And then there are some Christians on kind of like a, a curve who are just not very lovable ever. Now, because all of you, you're lovable most of the time. But, but why would a Christian love anybody in this category, another Christian who isn't very lovable? Why would they do it? Why would they love someone who just really isn't very lovable? Well, it's not because it is forced upon them to do it. 
It's not because they have to. It's not because there's like a checkbox that they have to check off to make sure that they do it. It's not because, it's not because y- you want to, y- you feel guilted into it or required to do it. It's not because you want to get your gold ticket into heaven and so that's what you have to do. That's not why you do those things. The reason that you would love people in this category of, yeah, they're kind of hard to love is because it's just a family trait. It's, it's just a part of who you are. You don't have to, you want to. You aren't required to, you desire to. You want, you wish I wish that I could love like God loved me. Now, you're probably realizing that you're going to fall short in that desire sometimes. You're not always going to live up to to that kind of love. Sometimes we arrive late to things. We fall short in our family trait. Sometimes we eat at other places than Del Taco. We fall fall short of our trait every once in a while. Sometimes we'll even cheer for the angels when they actually win a game, we'll cheer for the Anaheim Angels, which is rare these days. So sometimes you'll fall short of your family trait, but it is a family trait, and it's there more often than not. Let's move to the next section, the next segment here that will drill even deeper on this idea of love. Verse 9. It says, by this the love of God was manifested in us. So this is going to be a section that shows that the dominant manifestation, that's the word that's used, the dominant manifestation of this kind of love is Jesus coming to earth. That is is the, the greatest way that this love has manifested, or we might use the word demonstrated. This is like the supreme demonstration of this kind of love is Jesus coming to earth. By this, the love of God was manifested in us, verse 9, that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so the point here is, it's not about us loving God. It's not it. And really, it's not about us loving others. It's about the fact that God has graciously displayed this love for us through Jesus Christ. And now that we have received this love and salvation, now we can give this love to other people. After all, it's a family trait. And this idea of the sacrifices or the immense righteousness of God. And and because God is righteous and holy, he's a perfect judge. A judge wouldn't be righteous if he even let one little thing go free. He wouldn't be a righteous, perfect judge. He'd be almost righteous. He'd be almost perfect if he let a few go through. But he's a perfect, righteous, holy judge. And God in heaven doesn't allow a single iniquity, a single transgression to go undealt with. And so that's why the Bible says the wages of sin is death, that every person who has ever committed iniquity, ever committed a transgression, ever disobeyed your mom just one time, the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God in a place called hell. And so that is the place where all of us are. All of us are like that. All of us like sheep have gone astray. 
We all have done that. And the, the, and the way out of this, you can't be a nice enough person. You can't post enough Bible verses on Instagram. You can't give enough money to a church to get yourself out of this situation for God to smile on you because we've committed iniquities. We've transgressed the perfection of God. And so God sends the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, and he comes and he is being crushed on the cross for us. As a part of that crushing on the cross, they, they took a spear, and as Jesus is hanging there, they took the spear and they shoved that spear up through his ribcage, up into his heart, and pierced his heart. He was pierced through for our transgressions. This is what Jesus Christ, this is the manifestation of this kind of love. This is the, 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 the demonstration of the sacrificing kind of love. There was no benefit for Jesus at all. I mean, if he was in it for himself, he'd say, I didn't do anything, put them on the cross, and we would all deserve to be on the cross forever to pay for all of our sin. And yet Jesus Christ took that punishment, not for his. He was pierced through for our transgressions, he was pierced through for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. But that's not it. The prophet keeps going and says, the chastening for our well-being fell upon him. That we're chasing is just another word for uh, taking the beating, for, t- for taking, the, the, t- taking the, 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 the brunt of our sin. And that is what this kind of love is. It is the object of the love is the one that gets the benefit. We are the ones that are healed because of the sacrifice of someone else. This is the demonstration. This is this, is this type of love being manifested, being shown to humanity in the greatest way possible by his scourging by his sacrifice, then there are recipients that get something. And they don't get scourging, even though they deserve it. They get healed, even though they can't ever pay back that healing. This is that kind of love poured out for us. And so then the prophet Isaiah says something that we all already know. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. Every single one of us, none of us are born Christians because your parents are Christians. You're not saved. No one's born a believer. We are all astray. And he says, though, he finishes it with, but the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. That is a wonderful statement. When Jesus was on the cross and he yells out, it is finished, the the phraseology there is paid in full. It's what you would stamp at the bottom of an invoice. You know, you have accounts payable and someone finally pays the invoice and you stamp on it, paid in full. That's what Jesus Christ heals out. And that is the word that is in verse 10. He loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. That's just a long word for the payment for my sin. He hung on that cross instead of me. He was the propitiation. He was the payment. It is now paid in full. All of my sins completely paid for on the cross. And any person that puts their belief, their trust in this Jesus, that the death of Jesus wasn't, a, wasn't distant when you put your belief in Jesus, now it literally applies in my life. And my sin is paid for because of what Jesus Christ, and my sin is removed. It is forgiven. It's not that it didn't happen. Oh, no, it did. Jesus had to die on the cross for it, but now we are wrapped in Jesus' robes of righteousness. And that is how he is our propitiation. 
This is the love that has been demonstrated in that way. And so any person that has received this kind of love, it's now been demonstrated to them. And they have God's Holy Spirit, the third person Trinity, living inside of them. And so now they can do what they have experienced. It first came from God. It didn't come from your mom. It didn't come from your dad. It didn't come from your emotions. It came from God. And now, that is how a Christian can love other Christians. Now let's move to the next section here because the next section is pretty interesting. It says, no one has seen God, the Father. No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. That is an interesting phrase. And there's a reason that that phrase is in here. Sometimes the early Christians, first, second, third century, the early Christians were accused of being atheists of all things. Like, why would the Christians be accused of being atheists? Why would the culture assume that the early Christians were atheists? Well, because the Christians didn't like have a God. You know? They didn't have like a Buddha sitting on the shelf. They didn't have a statue of Mary with candles all around it. They didn't have like a, a, a chiseled uh, Anubis from Egypt sitting on their mantle. And so the culture just kind of assumed, yeah, I mean, they're using religious terms, but they're obvious, a, obviously atheists because there is no, where's their God? Now, of course, they did have a God. The God is just invisible. No one has seen God. The God's just invisible. We, we don't wear our God around our neck. We don't put we don't put God like in our pockets. God isn't made out of some metal thing. It isn't carved out of wood. Our God isn't like placed on a mantle in like a primary place in our house and that's where God is. Our God is an invisible God. So then what would be the evidence that God really exists? What would be the evidence of the existence of God if there is no God to look at? Well, John makes it clear, and the other New Testament books make it clear too, that is the, it is the actions of Christians that reveal the existence of God, namely, loving other Christians. Loving other Christians reveals the existence of God. Because non-Christians can, can argue theology. The, the world can, can debate the doctrines in the Bible, but they can't, no one can debate when God transforms a person. <laughs> you can't debate that. There are no points of contention when a person is transformed from one thing to another. You can't argue that. When, when, a, when a person is transformed from being bitter to being soft and loving. You can't argue that. You, you can argue doctrine all you want, but you can't order, uh, argue when someone is selfish and something happens to them in their life and all of a sudden they are sacrificial and loving and giving. You can't argue that. There, there, there are no points of discussion when someone is callous and hard Likes to argue. 
And then something happens miraculously to them. They are changed and they're soft towards other people. You can't argue that. You can argue a lot of things. You, can, you can't argue a changed person. That is the evidence that God exists. So let's go back to verse 12. It says, no one has seen God the Father at any time. And yeah, that is absolutely the case. No one has seen God at any time. And of course, Jesus has ascended back up into heaven. And so, now what? No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. We have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God abides in him and he in God. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. There's a lot of abiding in the book of 1 John. Abiding just means lives with, communes with, um, is close to, lives with. And so the math in this passage is simple. If no one has seen God the Father at any time, and now Jesus Christ is in heaven, how in the world is the world going to know about God's love? How in the world is the world going to know that God even exists? How in the world is the world going to know that we are abiding with God? It is in this kind of love, where other Christians are loving other Christians This is how the world is going to know that God even exists. It is a responsibility of being a part of the family. It is just who we are. It's in our nature. And this is the way that that Jesus says it in, uh, in Matthew 5. It says, For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Like, if you're loving to people who are already, you know, super nice to you and, you know, they're your, you know, they're your parents or they're your kids or, you know, they, they gave you coffee in the morning and you love them, well, what big a deal is that? It says, do not even the tax collectors do the same? Tax collectors is a euphemism for the ungodly. Don't, don't the ungodly love the people that bring them coffee? Sure. Anybody would love that. If you greet only your brothers... What more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Yeah, it's easy to love the people that are the lovable ones most of the time. That's why it's easy to love you, because you're lovable all the time. That's not not the issue. The issue is loving the, the believers that might not be very lovable. And and you might not want to sacrifice for unless you had been sacrificed for yourself and you've received this kind of love and so now you want to give it. That's what it says then. Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. It's part of the family. It's responsibility of the family. This is who we are as a family. Being children of God, we love each other. That's a responsibility. Now, there are benefits to being a part of the family. Yes, there are responsibilities, and one of them is to love even the ones that are really hard to love. But there's some benefits too. Not just now, but in the future. 
There's benefits to being a part of the Zickert family. Not just now. There are benefits to being a part of the Zickert family now. There's even benefits to being part of the Zickert family in the future. When I die, my kids, there's benefits for them when I die. They get an old house, they get an old car, and a bazillion dollars in my bank account. That's what they get. There's benefits to this. Well, there's benefits to you as a Christian when you live like this, and some of the benefits are in the future. Let's read verse 17. It says, By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also we are in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because love involves punishment, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Notice the confidence. Here's the benefit. Go back to verse 17. Here's the benefit to loving like this, that we may have confidence on the day of judgment. This is referring in the broadest sense to the judgment before God. The Bible says it is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes judgment. Every single person will be judged after they die. Every single one. And did you know that it's possible? It is possible for someone to look forward to that judgment. It's possible. It's possible for someone not to be worried about it, not to be anxious about that judgment. It's possible for someone to look forward to that judgment. And Christians can look forward to that judgment because of what has happened to them. That's what the rest of the verse is. It says they can have confidence on the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. God the Father is going to treat Christians the same way that he treats his son in heaven. After all, we're part of the family. We are, we are clothed in Jesus' robes of righteousness. And so when we get to judgment, we are not judged for our sin because according to, uh, through, as God looks through the robes of righteousness, we are righteous. We are not judged for our sins because our sins have been forgiven. Did you know it's possible to look forward to judgment? And, and why could a person have confidence in that? How could a person have confidence in that? When a Christian is loving towards other Christians, particularly the segment who are not really easy to love, when you just kind of have this, why, did I, why do I put up with them? I don't know. They're just kind of quirky to me. That's just who they are. Okay, fine. I can love them. When, when you start to love like that, when you start to notice this trait of loving other people, other Christians, even when they're not lovable and you sacrifice for them, even when they can't pay you back and don't want to pay you back, when you start to notice that trait in you, that builds confidence, like a practical confidence. Like, I'm saved. That is an evidence of me being saved. I can see that little trait in me, though it might be small and still growing, I can see that trait in me, and that gives me confidence because I know that I will have that same salvation that I received in heaven as well. In chapter 3, verse 2 of 1 John, you can just read it. It's probably on the same page, just on the left-hand side. At least that's the way it is for me. 
1 John chapter 3, verse 2, it says, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. This is referring to something that's going to happen in the future. And it says, we will know that when he appears, this is when Jesus Christ returns the second time, he came once as a baby in a manger, and he will come again someday in the future. We will be like him because we will see him as he is. When a Christian displays God's type of sacrificial love that they received through salvation, when they display that same type of of love that Jesus Christ displayed, they can have confidence that they are being like Jesus. They're a child of God. They're, They're a part of the family. After all, it's a part of the DNA. But there's a flip side to this too. What if that's not that way? What if someone doesn't love like that? Well, look at verse 20. Verse 20 says this. If someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, he's a liar. If someone says that they're a Christian, that they love God, they're they're in fellowship with God, of course, but they cannot love other Christians, they can't find a way to be loving to other people and to be sacrificial towards them, they're just a big fat liar. That's all they are. They they are pretending to be something they're not. They They are someone who is out, but they are saying that they are in. They're a liar. They do not love God. They, they don't show, exhibit, they aren't, they aren't showing what this trait DNA that is inside of them, they aren't showing that trait because it's not inside of them. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God who he has not seen. So, It is appointed unto man to die once, and after this comes judgment. And those people who are loving, sacrificially loving other Christians, they can have confidence on the day of judgment. But the person who is not loving, they better worry about judgment. They need to be in fear of judgment because it means that they're not saved and that they will then have to pay for their own sin in eternity in hell as opposed to Jesus Christ having paid for their sin already. They should worry about that. And so the question is, is, do I love like that? Do I love like that? And if you say, yes, I do love like that, well, good. It doesn't mean you're a really nice person. God loved you first. That's the point. It's not that you're a great person. It's that God is great. And he has given you this trait that is his in being a part of the family. Now, part of, part of all this is, it's hard to like, how does this like apply in like a, we can talk about it in kind of big terms like this. This is how the outsiders know that you're saved. So if you have a very calloused husband and he does not like being married. He talks about the ball and chain at work all the time. When he goes and plays softball with his buddies, he's always complaining about how bad his wife is. And then all of a sudden, he is loving and sacrificial to her. There's this transformation. There's no arguing that. That's how the world knows. That's how the world can see it. When there's a bitter wife, 
She has been treated so poorly in her life, maybe even by her parents or abused by other men, married to a Christian man, but she just has that, it, it goes so deep in her heart. And she's bitter towards her own husband and laughs at him behind his back and talks about it with her friends about how dumb and goofy he is. And then all of a sudden there's a transformation and all of a sudden she is loving and soft and kind and sacrificial and fits into the plans of her husband. You can't argue that. There has to be a God. If that happened, that is the evidence that God exists. When a teenager is selfish, and we've all been selfish teenagers, a teenager is selfish and only into themselves. They don't care about anybody else. And then there's a transformation in their life. And I don't mean like the kind of transformation like when they were in the second grade and they prayed the same prayer that everybody prayed. I mean, they heard the gospel, they knew that they were a sinner, they put their faith in Jesus Christ, and there's a change, and the teenager loves their parents. There has to be a God for a teenager to love their parents. That's the evidence. That's where this comes through. This is the application of all of these things. So, of course, the family would be the first place where this would be seen. And the very next place that this kind of love would be seen would be at a church, at a group of other Christians. Probably your closest circle of Christians is your family. And the way that you talk about your kids, the way that you talk about your mom and dad, the way that you talk about your, your, your wife or your husband to other people, that is one way that they're going to know that you love Jesus that you're a Christian. The other way that they're going to know is by the way that you treat other Christians even beyond that. Probably the local church is the next place where you're around a lot of Christians. I mean, look around. Or, I mean, I'm talking about us. <laughs> I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about us. And that's why we do the things that we do here around Grace Community Church. We have all sorts of things that we do around here. Part of the, the purpose of the things that we do is to allow each other to love each other sacrificially. I mean, all the way from like entry level, like in our Barnabas groups, we meet once a month. It is a way to get to know other people's lives, pray for each other, get to know issues in their lives. And there are hundreds of stories, just are, you can't even recount them all, of the little ways that love has, that, Christians have sacrificed for other Christians, even in their Barnabas groups. Or then we have our men's small groups and our women's small groups where it's every single week for not just a couple months, for years and years and decades and decades and decades. And in those small groups, you begin to get to know those men or those women so well that you begin to love them in a different way and you sacrifice for them in even a deeper way because you're close to them right now. Like right now, there are people who are sacrificing themselves for our benefit. There's a whole group of teachers in our Family Life Center who are teaching all of our kids right now. And though you, here we are, second service, you woke up late, you came to second service, and your kids are over there, they, th those people, they came early, they came to first service, they're here for two services for the sacrifice, for the benefit, and they, they're not doing it for a thank you although it might be nice to say thank you. They're not, doing it, they're not doing it because they feel guilty. They're not doing it because they're trying to, uh, you know, get the gold card, you know? And to get the gold card, you have to put in a few extra hours. They're not doing it for that. They're doing it because they love other Christians. And so the church is the next place where this love can be seen. And the question is, is do you love like this? Do I love like this? And if the answer is yes, well, great. That's God that gave that love to you. And if you'd say, no, I don't love like that, this is a mirror to you saying, maybe I'm not really a child of God. 
Maybe I've been pretending. I have been lying to myself. I've been lying to other people. And I've deceived everyone except my own internal understanding. And if this has been that for you, if now you realize that you don't have this kind of love and you are not a believer, you are not a child of God, that can change instantly. You can put your faith, your trust in Jesus Christ as your Savior. And He can help you love just like this. So I'm going to give you the opportunity to do that. So I'm going to ask all of you, would you be willing to bow your heads and close your eyes? Just creates a little separation between you and the person next to you. You're, you might already know that you're going to heaven, but the person next to you, you don't know their heart. So give them a chance to consider this. If, if you want your sins to be forgiven, if you want Jesus Christ's death to apply in your life and to be a propitiation, a payment for your sin, all you do is you talk to God. You don't need to talk to me. You don't need to say anything out loud. God knows what's on your mind. He, he can read your heart. You don't need to say anything out loud. You don't need to raise your hand. This is what you could say to him in the privacy of your own heart. You could say, God, I know that I have sinned. I have transgressed your perfectness. I have committed iniquities. And I realize that there is a payment to pay for that in eternity in hell. And I need a savior. I need someone to save me from that penalty. And I believe that Jesus is that savior. I believe that Jesus is God. I believe that when he was on the cross, he was not paying for his sin. I believe that he was paying for mine. I believe that three days later, he rose from the grave proving that he can do everything that the Bible says that he can do in removing my sin. And I put my belief, my trust, my faith in this Jesus. With your head still bowed and your eyes still closed, immediate promises to God the Holy Spirit does come and live inside of you. And you will begin, as you're sensitive to his leading, to grow in this type of love for other Christians. And God, we praise you as a church family for this. We thank you for the love that you've bestowed upon us. We thank you for giving this love to us and this manifestation of Jesus Christ demonstrated to us through your Son. We, we praise you for this. This is why we are here today is worshiping you because of that demonstration of love. And God, I pray that our church would be loving because of what you have done to us that then we would be loving towards each other. We pray that you would work in us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen.